This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. So here's a little secret about what is and what is not a, a fossil. It's really only determined by time. So it's generally argued that you know, anything more than any you know, remnant of, of life older than about 10,000 years counts as a fossil, whereas anything younger than that, anything more recent than that, uh, does not. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alexander McNamara, online editor at BBC Science Focus, and this week I got the chance to talk to Brian Sweetek, the pen name of science writer and fossil fanatic Riley Black. This year, she released a book called The Secret Life of Bones, which as well as explaining how and why we evolve bones, explains the relationships us humans have with these sturdy struts of osseous tissue. I won't lie, other than first-hand experience of what happens when they break, I didn't know much about bones before we spoke, so she helpfully explained what a bone is and how they turn into fossils, as well as how they revealed Richard III's diet, were historically used to justify scientific racism, and why Hollywood is getting aliens all wrong. Let us know what you think with a review or a rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. I didn't really think of bones as being much other than that sort of thing that keeps your body uh, in some sort of rigid shape and break when you play sports too much. Um, so can you just explain what exactly is a bone? Right. So when we talk about bones, we're really talking about two different things, even though we use the same word. There's the material bone, the tissue bone. Uh, and that's made up of uh, collagen, which is a flexible protein material, and hydroxyapatite, which is the mineral part. So you basically have a soft, flexible part and a hard part in different proportions that make up the tissue bone, where, wherever it appears, whether we're talking about you know the leg bone, a skull bone, uh, a piece of armor from a crocodile's skin, uh, anything like that, it's made of the tissue bone. But oftentimes when we talk about our bones, plural, as in our skeleton, we're talking about elements of that skeleton. So individual bits and interlocking pieces or sometimes not interlocking pieces that make up what the skeleton is. So yeah, bone has those two distinct meanings. There's the element itself, like a femur or um, you know, a frontal bone or something like that. But then there's also the tissue bone. And they don't always necessarily go together. A good counterexample is uh, sharks, that sharks have skeletons, they have bones, but they're not made of the tissue bone, they're made of cartilage. So that's a good example of how bone can sometimes have different meanings. Hmm. That's funny. I, I, I don't sort of imagine um, uh, when I think of fish and, and I guess sharks are different from fish and the fact that they have that their bones are different. Yeah, so uh, sharks are fish, and that you know they share a common ancestry, and they you know, belong to the larger group of, of animals that we call fish. But uh, yeah, they have skeletons that are made of cartilage instead of uh, ossified bone. This seems to be an evolutionary reversal that earlier fish, that their an- shark ancestors, 
may have had bony skeletons, skeletons made of bone, uh, and that they eventually switched this out for cartilage. It used to be thought it was the other way around, that sharks were relatively uh, archaic or primitive animals, and it seems that they're quite advanced in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, that, that's one way to um, separate out what we call the cart- cartilaginous fish, so basically sharks and rays, from their living relatives. But that only makes sense basically from our modern viewpoint if you follow that deep into the past you're going to find all these you know changing changes to and fro uh in terms of where bone shows up in the fossil record that's interesting like that that point of evolution is is that bones seem like something that a lot of animals have in some shape or form how did we actually you know evolve uh, bones from the very beginning to, to what we know of them now yeah, so they're the two distinct parts of the early prehistory of our own skeletons. And the first is laying out the body plan of you know what our skeleton would eventually become. Uh, so if you were to go back about 515 million years ago, so to uh, what we know as the Cambrian period, to a place like the Burgess Shale that's been found in uh, Canada, or there are some sites in China that preserve these records, you would mostly see a world of invertebrates. You'd see lots of arthropods and things with jointed appendages and uh, you know compound eyes and stuff all over the place. Then you see the little squiggly things uh, that look might just look like a worm. In fact, this is what we thought they were when they were first discovered in the fossil record. But these are protovertebrates, things with names like pacaya. And they had a head end, so all the sensory, basically, apparatus put you know, in a single place towards the front of the body. And along their back, they had what's called a notochord, this sort of flexible cord that was the precursor of our own spinal columns. So this is pretty important already. So you not only have bilateral symmetry, you not only have the beginnings of a spine, but you have you know, the major sensory organs of the body all in one place. So the skull is eventually going to wrap around. So this is an important point, even though bone hadn't evolved yet and went for another 100 million years, and I'll get to that in just a second, the fact that our protovertebrate ancestors had this form uh, basically laid out what our bodies are going to be. You stick you know, a couple of fins on there around the you know, chest and hip region, you have more or less what our body plan is. So bone itself showed up about 100 million years later. It started out as an external armor, this material called aspidin that's a mineralized material that's almost like teeth. Very, very hard. And it covered the bodies of some of these ancient fish. And basically, when bodies evolved to make these mineralized materials, make these hardened materials that could act as exterior armor, uh, the inside of the body, the internal skeleton that was already there and made of cartilage at this point, uh, started to become ossified or started to turn to bone. So you basically had these multiple steps to create in, an internal skeleton that you had the basic layout that was formed more or less in cartilage and other soft tissues. Then you had bone form on the outside, and then the internal skeleton started to change into bone as that outside armor got lost. So it's you know not this easy straight line progression, but a lot of shifting back and forth. And is that what, what's the difference between uh, something that's had this outside armor as compared to the, the inside? What was the benefit of the bones going inside? So the uh, bones growing inside bodies provided more structural support in some ways, allowed uh, you know, stronger anchor points for muscles. At least this is the hypothesis. It's difficult to test some of these things unless we can you know, go back 400 some odd million years. But uh, the general idea was that they provided you know, this internal structure, much the way that our skeletons and our own bodies work for this push and pull of, of the muscles to allow bodies to move with a little bit more 
uh, a little bit more power, get, you know, those in these early fish, these swimming muscles to, you know, twitch a little bit faster, a little bit stronger to evade their predators. Uh, also be a little bit perhaps more resilient. The bone is self-repairing in a really wonderful way. So if these fish uh, were injured somehow, you know, the initial bone as spitten, it was just like a tooth that wouldn't repair. But eventually as bone, um, became more interactive, more reactive to the world around it, uh, is able to repair itself. And that's a pretty handy adaptation to have. And that's why you know, even our own skeleton, you, know, you break your wrist or you fall down and you break a toe or something, uh, that bone, you, know, you still want to go to the doctor, but that bone will start to repair itself almost immediately. <laughs> such a mind-bogglingly large amount of time. I always say like it's taken 500 million odd years, give or take, to, to get us this far is it like how come it's taken like you know what sort of directions and paths have we taken along that huge amount of time yeah so bone is you know very versatile some of my favorites uh bones are bones that we don't have so sort of these alternates uh evolutionary forms that you know, might be similar in some ways because all vertebrates we share a basic body plan thanks to those very ancient ancestors but for example in a giant ground sloths that used to live uh, in the americas that they have bones that grew in their skin called osteoderms so they had bone armor these little pebbles that you sometimes find uh that cover their bodies as a form of protection uh in pterosaurs the flying reptiles that lived alongside uh, the dinosaurs they had uh, specialized bones that stuck up from their equivalent other collarbone and pointed inward towards the neck to hold up this bit of membrane that gave them a little bit more surface area to stay aloft. And, uh, you know, there are all these other, you know, bones that, that we don't have. But if you look at most vertebrate skeletons, if you go to a museum and you look at the skeleton of, you know, any given dinosaur, you know, a skeleton of a lion or a tiger, whatever mammal that you're looking at, you can find most of the same bones in our own bodies that you can, you know, identify, you know, the frontal bone, the parietal bone, the, the dentary, which, you know, those are all skull bones, um, you know, the dentary that holds the teeth. You can see, you know, the femur or thigh bone, you can see ribs and vertebrae. So the expressions might be different because of different, you know, adaptations, different modes of living, different ecologies, different history. But it's really, what's really wonderful about skeletons is how many different forms have evolved basically along the same evolutionary chassis that, you know, you can look at something like a T-Rex or like a river otter or a hedgehog or something like that and see pretty much the same bones that are in your own skeleton, just slightly differently shaped. <laughs> and so how far back do we have to go to sort of get to a point where we go, okay, this is the first, uh, as you say, proto-vertebrate or the, the first sort of kind of vertebrate we said, okay, you know what, having femurs and uh, collarbones are a good thing as make that the blueprint for everything. Right. So for uh, many of the vertebrates that live on land, so this would be accepting fish. So we're talking in, in these terms in terms of amphibians, in terms of you know, reptiles and birds and, and mammals. Uh, about 375 million years ago, and this is when uh, this great, what's often been called the sort of the invasion of land or sort of the transition to land occurred, where you had fish that looked somewhat like lungfish or like the coelacanth, that fish that was rediscovered and you know, thought to be extinct and found off South Africa and now lives you know, throughout the Pacific. They're lobe fin fish and that their fins have um, these clumps of bone in them that are arranged more or less the same way that the bones inside our limbs are, that these are some of our closest uh, fishy relatives and what the first land-dwelling vertebrates are tetrapods. That means uh, vertebrates with four limbs, you know, uh, tetrapods meaning basically four, four limbs, evolved 
from. Uh, and they initially lived at the water's edge. They lived in these swamps. They were trying to catch insects that had already moved you know, onto land. Uh, so it was kind of a buffet for whoever could you know, drag themselves out along the water line and snap things up. And that might have been the initial impetus to you know, get these fish onto land. So you had something like a lungfish that evolved limbs and fingers uh, in swampy environments to basically push themselves around and paddle around in this weed-choked environment. And then because plants and insects were already on land and nobody was eating all this food, there's ripe opportunity for them to become more and more adapted to life on land. And that's when we get the beginnings of uh, amphibians and reptiles and eventually mammals and birds and invertebrates as we know them. But they're all based upon the same body plan that has a skull that's attached to a spine that has a you know pectoral or chest region with arms sticking out of it and a pelvic region or hip region with legs sticking out of that. So you know any bird, any reptile, any mammal that you can think of is either is a direct expression of that body plan or been modified from it. So snakes, for example, even though they've lost their limbs, are still considered tetrapods. <laughs> it's weird. I, I I guess now that I think about it, when I think of like. Um or the truly sort of alien-looking creatures that I can think of, they tend to be uh, fish or, you know, live at not fish, exactly, that would be the wrong term, but they live in the sea, and those are the sort of weird ones. I guess that's they've had a different evolutionary path to everything else that I sort of think of when it comes to land animals. Absolutely. So, you know, in the oceans, you have things like starfish, for example, you know, echinoderms that have uh, radial symmetry or symmetry that's based in a, in a circle, pretty much, that you can divide them in any number of ways and still get two identical halves. You can't do that to, to us or most, <laughs> most vertebrates. Or, uh, you know, arthropods, things with, you know, all kinds of what we consider extra legs or cephalopods, things like the octopus and squid that seem so different from us. And I think this is, you know, worth Noting, I I talk about this a little bit in the book, that, you know, if you look at most uh, aliens that are created for Hollywood films or science fiction in general, they're more or less humanoid or they're more more or less like a vertebrate with usually just a couple of, you know, extra legs stuck on or maybe antennae or something like that. But we don't really have as much imagination as, you know, you might think when it comes to imagining these these beings that, that don't exist because we're just so used to the kind of symmetry that we have, the kind of body plan that we have. Like, for example, like the Avatar movies, uh, you know, create this whole lush alien world, you know, totally open to creativity and yet every single animal is basically like a horse with another pair of legs or a person (laughs) with another pair of legs and it's a quick and easy way to make something seem unusual when it's really just one mutation away you know if you're if we're able to go back in the past and this gets i guess why we have four limbs instead of six or instead of just two that these early fishy things and initially they didn't have any fins and the pectoral fins were the first to evolve that you know assisted with steering once once they appeared and somewhere along the way, there was probably a blip in development, a mutation that basically told one of these developing fish or in a population of these fish that, okay, as we're putting the body together through embryonic development, let's make another pair of those arms, but further down the body. And this is why not only do we have four limbs, but if you look at the bones or the structure of your legs compared to your arms, it's the same layout, that you have a large upper bone that connects to the body, which connects to two uh, bones in your lower limb, which can you know connects to all the little fiddly bits in your your hands and fingers or your feet and toes. So this is all because of a genetic accident. So if that hadn't happened, then vertebrates may have only ever evolved arms and not legs. Or if that happened again, 
then we might have many more legs and our anatomy might be very, very different. So a lot of this is this deep, um, basically happenstance that, you know, these evolutionary accidents that then, you know, for whatever reason, it hits on something that's useful or assist survival and we got locked into a particular form when it didn't necessarily have to be that way. It seems like that's, uh, you know, this is sort of um, natural selection, I guess, or just evolution in a really, really sort of simple and easy way to understand is just by looking through bones. Yeah, so we can understand uh, how natural selection works by looking at uh, living animals. You know, after all, if you go back and you read On the Origin of Species, Darwin begins his book with uh, talking about uh, pigeons and artificial selection and, you know, how if we're able to specifically pick pigeons out for certain traits, whether that's, you know, being like a tumbler and tumble through the air, have a big fan tail or a certain color. Uh, why can't nature do the same thing? We've already proven that organisms are variable and those variations are inheritable and they can change organisms over time. Uh, so, of course, the same thing happened in nature. So we're able to look back in the fossil record and we can't watch natural selection or evolutionary forces because it's not just natural selection. Uh, occur in real time, but it can still act as a test of what we expect about evolution that we can say, okay, you know, we have all these critters without limbs that seem related to vertebrates during this time period. And then we've got say a hundred million year gap. And we have all these critters that, you know, seem to have some similar traits, but now they've got limbs and they're doing all these interesting things. If we go back in that gap, like we can sort of get an idea of where to find them, what they might look like, and then what's uncovered becomes a test of that in the fossil record. In fact, that's how one of the most important fossils in our backstory uh, called Tiktaalik was found, is that there was a gap in our knowledge about you know, some of these vertebrates that you know, were evolving limbs and lived in this critical window where life in the water was moving onto land. So paleontologists identified where they were likely to find such an animal, and they went to Ellesmere Island, Canada, and lo and behold, it, it turned up. So even though um, you know modern genetics and you know ecology and biology, looking at you know life around us now, provides ample proof of evolution and how it works. Some of these you know huge transcendent changes, the changes that we talk about when we talk about fish moving onto land or feathered dinosaurs becoming birds or whales like living on land and then living in the sea, you can only really appreciate that and see that through the fossil record. <laughs> That's really interesting because it, it sort of brings me to uh, a point, which is that so obviously you you're you're chiefly a paleontologist, aren't you? So um, uh, how do we learn all of this from just the fossil records? Because you know, as far as I see fossils, they are you know, interesting things set in stone. How do how do bones become fossils, and then how do we use those fossil records to be able to understand what life was like, you know, one hundred, two hundred, three hundred million years ago? Right, so that's a that's a big question. I mean, that's probably a book by by itself. But uh, what? So here's a little secret about what is and what is not a, a fossil. It's really only determined by time. So it's generally argued that you know, anything more than any you know remnant of of life older than about ten thousand years counts as a fossil, whereas anything younger than that, anything more recent than that. Uh, does not, which is really kind of arbitrary because, you know, and, and it doesn't mean uh, fossil is not the same thing as petrified or turned to stone. For example, there are fossil mammoth bones that are not fossilized at all. They're basically, you know, they're a little bit worn with age, but they're, they're still fresh. They haven't been replaced by minerals, but they still count as as fossils. But when we often think about fossil bones, we think about, you know, those big petrified 
dinosaur bones that have been replaced with minerals. So typically, in ideal circumstances, uh, to get a body fossil, there's a whole other class of fossils called trace fossils. They're like footprints or you know drags made in the mud or things that organisms did that are recorded in, in sediment. But a body fossil, the skeleton, you would want... Uh, that body to be covered relatively rapidly by sediment, either a collapsing sand dune or if it settles to the bottom of a lagoon or, or something like that, and have it be not disturbed by scavengers or any other activity. And over time, the soft tissues will, uh, for the most part, decay. Uh, and as water uh, carrying minerals basically percolates through bones, bones are sturdy enough to last a long time, parts of those bones, parts of the skeleton teeth as well, will become replaced by some of those minerals that are in that local area. And this is part of why uh, skeletons in different places uh, are different colors in the, in the fossil record, depending on the minerals that uh, get deposited inside of them. And then you've got you know, what we typically think of as like a fossil skeleton. And each of those are, is a uh, time capsule. So paleontology really relies not just on geology, but on comparative anatomy. So even if you find a single bone, you can get an idea of what kind of bone it is maybe by the texture or the shape. You can compare that to you know mammals, reptiles, birds, what have you, and get an idea of like what class of organism this belonged to. If you cut into that bone, you can use a science called histology. That's you know very important in medicine, but also important in paleontology, where you can see how this organism was growing. Was it fast? Was it slow? Were they old? Were they young? Did they have a warm-blooded metabolism? Were they more uh, you know did their temperature vary with the environment? We can get uh, geochemical isotopes, so these chemical traces that involve signatures from what the animal was eating or what they were drinking or um, you know, other aspects of their environment. So a lot of modern paleontology is involving paleobiology. It's not just collecting these bones and organizing them and saying, you know, we have a new species of tyrannosaur or what have you. It's really looking into you know, even a fragment of bone and seeing what these secrets are what stories it can tell about life. So really using what we know about modern life and finding ways to draw that out of these bones from the past. And really, it's, it's such a complicated process. And we only have a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of all the vertebrates that ever existed. I actually just wrote an article about this, about you know how many dinosaurs are there left to find. It's like there are probably thousands of species uh, left out there. And there are probably many more that existed that we're never going to find because they didn't get buried in the right circumstances or their bones got destroyed. So really, when you look at the fossil record and all the amazing things that we've found so far, uh, it's kind of amazing that we have them at all, given all the different circumstances that could you know destroy those or prevent them us from finding them. <laughs> That's really interesting. I, I've, I've never really sort of put two and two or thought about how how the bones turn into it, but that's a really, really good explanation of of, of how they form. And I think I'll, I'll look at them, well, really differently now, from now on after that. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I wanted to do with this book in that, you know, I, I make my living as a uh, science writer. That's my career is writing about paleontology and natural history. I also go out in the field and dig things up. But I'd focus so long on you know, my favorite sort of charismatic megafauna things like you know saber-toothed cats and, and dinosaurs and whatever was weird and, and wonderful you know over the past 500 million years or so but i didn't really pay all that much attention to 
our own skeletons. Because uh, to me, you know, we don't have, you know, a spiky tail or really you know, impressive teeth or anything. You know, humans compared to some of the animals that we love from the fossil record seem kind of plain. And, you know, that was my own bias, I guess, against myself and, the, and against my own species. But I started thinking about, it's like, well, what if I took that same approach? What if some of these questions I love to ask about fossils. Like when I find something in the field, I was just out uh, in eastern Utah looking in Jurassic Age sediments a few weeks ago, you know, found some bones uh, in this pile like out on a hill and started to ask, okay, well, what element is this? What animal was it? You know, where did it live? How did it move? Where did it look like? How old was it? You know, all these things that I ask about ancient life, I could ask the same questions about my own skeleton or the skeleton of my own species. So it was really taking those questions that, you know, seem so apparent when we think about dinosaurs and turning them inward to say, okay, well, if, you know, basically coming from the perspective of if, uh, you know, the human race, if humanity went extinct, you know, it's at some point in the near future and, you know, 100 million years later, you know, a paleontologist from another species, however you want to describe them, found our bones. What things would they be able to tell about us? What stories about ourselves and our history do our bones say? Yeah, no, I, I imagine there must be a different way of approaching that because obviously, you know, dinosaur bones are millions of years old, whereas human bones are a far shorter scale of time. Yeah, so the oldest uh, humans, so what are technically called hominins, uh, go back to about five million years or so ago. There's a little bit of debate about you know who's the first human, as there always is, and paleoanthropology. But it's in that window that you know, we see humans as a distinct lineage of apes that you know evolved from uh, this this wider family. Uh, and in terms of our own species, I think it was just in the past uh, year or two that the oldest uh, Homo sapiens representatives were dated to about 300,000 years ago. So when you're looking at some of these other timescales, you're really quite recent. Although then again, this is our pull of the recent, this is our modern perspective, where we often tend to lump dinosaurs or prehistoric organisms to, we mush them together in time, more or less, or you know, species that never would have seen each other. We buy them in the same place at the museum gift shop or wherever, see them in the films together. Uh, to give you an example of just the span, the, the time span involved, uh, you know, everybody knows Stegosaurus, that plate-backed, spiky-tailed dinosaur that lived in the Jurassic about 150 million years ago. And everybody knows T-Rex, of course, which lived about 68 to 66 million years ago. So, you know, those are just numbers. And, you know, sometimes we see these dinosaurs uh, together, like in Disney's Fantasia. But in, in fact, they lived over 80 million years apart from each other. They never were even close to each other in time. And what's neat about, I like that statistic because you could fit the entire sort of post-reign of dinosaurs, history of the world, the past 66 million years in which mammals came into their own, that's so important to our own history, in that gap and still have room to spare. That's how long that is, that you could take the entire, you know, post-Cretaceous extinction history of the world and slot it between those two dinosaurs, and you're not even getting to the very beginning of, of when they appeared. So some of these timescales, yeah, it's absolutely mind-boggling trying to understand them. Um, but I, so I guess for human history, um, I guess you, you have to look a lot more at the, the, the cultural things, so, you know, how societies have, have responded to bones and that sort of thing to be able to get an understanding of, of, of what, what we can learn. Absolutely. So that's, you know, something that's different about us. I mean, there are other species who have certainly left their mark 
uh, on bone or even use bone as as tools, including some of our uh, you know close extinct human relatives. But for us, you know, it's really apparent that throughout human history, we've had a fascination with bones, you know, our own bones and the bones of other species, whether we've fashioned them into tools or collected them or, you know, various cultures, you know, around the world throughout history uh, seem fascinated with creating uh, cups out of skulls. Uh, I don't know what it is about the skull that makes people want to drink out of it, but it seems to be a common theme. Uh, and, and this is this whole other gloss, and we're still with it, you know, today that, you know, we, you know, uh, in, in some religious practices, for example, in, you know, Catholic religion, you have uh, reliquaries and sort of retaining these, you know, elements, you know, some oftentimes bones of, you know, holy people and, you know, asking them for, for intercession or, you know, people who collect bones who, you know, the, the market to buy and sell uh, human remains on the internet that's still going on today. And we're just starting to, you know, really question that and try and remedy some of the damage that's done through that. But yeah, that's the whole other aspect of this. There's the natural history of our bones, where we came from and what our bones do and what they say about our deep past. But there's also our perspectives on bones that have, you know, constantly been changing. And they often tell us a lot about our own humanity or what we think about ourselves and the people uh, around us. You know, the bones, it's, it's you know, a natural history, you know, object, for lack of a better term, that, you know, this is something that, you know, is part of our own nature, but depending on who's looking at it and what context, what they think that means or what that is might be entirely different. So, you know, I, I think I make this point late in the book that, you know, you can have a physician look at a bone and talk about pathology or the health of the individual, or you can look at, you know, uh, an anthropologist can look at it and maybe get an idea of, you know, who this person was and an individual and maybe where they came from. And you can, you know, have uh, you know, a bone collector look at something and say, I want that on my mantelpiece. Like really depending on who you are and what your perspective you have uh, dictates how we feel about bones. Oh, I, I was just, I think that um, when I see a bone like now, oh, well, when I see something like a skull, like a skull is very powerful imagery now of, of sort of like death or danger or something. But has it always been the case that we've had this sort of, you know, uh, grisly uh, perhaps uh, impression of, of, of things like skulls and bones? You know, it's difficult to to say because we're dealing with so many different, you know, cultures over the past three hundred thousand years and likely before that. But in terms of our, our grisly uh, association of you know bones and death, particularly skulls, a lot of that came out of the Black Plague and death as a character, death like death personified, as we often think of death as wearing you know, a black robe with the scythe and or you know whatever you know. Uh, agricultural tool you might might see death with that really came after like that just horrendous tragedy where death was everywhere prior to that um there wasn't necessarily that same association and i should point out that that's very much a western idea as well that you know there are certainly other cultures and other places around the world even today where uh you know bones and skeletons and the, the idea of death as a personified character are not nearly as as grim uh, so that's something that's you know relatively recent and dictated by culture. And you know, even you know, aspects of pop culture influence this. You know, it's really no uh, coincidence that death metal, you know, uh, bands and stuff you use bones and skeletons all over everything. That you have you know, sort of goth aesthetic. You know, Tim Burton films like you know, Nightmare Before Christmas, where your our hero is a you know, dancing, uh, singing skeleton. Uh, so you know, all these things influence our perceptions of bones. So we both you know, bring up this you know, visage of death that can be so terrifying. But at the same time, 
you know, we often imbue bones with a certain vitality and they're still alive. So it might not be quite as uh, dark as um, during other times in history. So yeah, it really is, it's a matter of the eye of the beholder. What you see in a bone or a skeleton uh, really depends on how your, your, your background culture and, and uh, how you're perceiving that. Mm-hmm. Now, there's, there's sort of related to that in a way is that what you see from these bones, there's one part in the book, which I know will be of interest to everyone, and certainly in the UK, which is you go into a lot of detail about uh, the body of Richard III. That's right. Yeah. So I just found that a fascinating case because, you know, so often, you know, whether it's a forensic anthropologist or an archaeologist, you know, people are looking at and studying bones constantly and depending on you know who that person is you know what people want to know research questions the ethics certainly involved you know it will determine you know what tests are carried out what we can learn about the skeleton but i picked richard iii particularly because you know this he got a, a kingly treatment for someone who you know, whose skeleton was, was found that normally you know, the, the number of tests and analyses that they ran on his remains um, you know not everybody gets that so i figured that was a good example to show the kinds of things that we can learn uh, from, you know, a skeleton that's discovered because, you know, they had a hunch when they initially uh, uncovered those remains in the car park that it was there. But, you know, how do you be sure, you know, in a previous decade or a previous century, if those remains were found, there'd be no way to really be sure. There's no context, there are no cultural artifacts or anything to really say that, you know, this is who they thought it was. So they had to, you know, go into, you know, a genetic material that was recovered from that skeleton, that our bones, you know, starts decaying at death, but their bones do preserve our DNA, that they were able to look at these geochemical isotopes to, you know, see what Richard was eating at different times, uh, you know, of his life. And if, you know, the historical records about his life were accurate, and it seems more or less that they were on the mark. And you can actually see in some of these, you know, geochemical signatures, uh, when he became king, his diet changed, as you might expect, and is much less grain-based and a lot more uh, game and fish and and things like that. Uh, And they're able to study uh, the fact that he had a form of scoliosis, that his spine did have a bend in it and how that affected his life. And I think the most, you know, this is where it does get grisly is the the various wounds that were on those bones. So basically what happened at the end of and following uh, the Battle of Bosworth and the sort of insults and injuries that his body suffered as it was, you know, taken from the battlefield to, you know, wherever it was taken next. So it really was all these stories that would be able to draw, be drawn out of the skeleton, I think really summarized the sort of, um, you know, power of this idea of our skeletons as a kind of time capsule that, you know, we don't just have them while we're alive, but they preserve evidence of who we were. Does that mean that his, um, his body, you know, Richard III's body that we found, so we were able to say that he is, it was interesting when you said you, we had a hunch um, of, uh, yeah. about what they find. He was obviously uh, quite famously portrayed as having a hunchback. Were we able yeah. to, how were we able to say, actually, you know what, it wasn't as bad or it was as bad as we thought or um, and that sort of thing? Yeah, this has to do with the entire field called uh, pathology. And pathology roughly is anything that seems unusual about a skeleton. You know, often it, it's uh, because of disease or injury, but it can also be intentional modifications. So I mentioned this in the book as well. People who have were extremely corseted for most of their lives during the 16th and 17th century, their skeletons are modified. So even though it didn't affect their health, uh, that difference caused by that you know, cultural effect we would consider uh, a pathology or something that's that's different. So in t- the terms of Richard III and his you know, famous spine, they're able to see the bent 
sideways. So he would have seemed relatively short statured, but as uh, the anthropologist carrying out the analysis you know, noted that, you know, by the time that, you know, he w- became king, that a good tailor would probably be able to, you know, create uh, armor and uh, clothing that would basically cover that up. And he probably wouldn't, it probably wouldn't have been obvious. So this wasn't the uh, Benedict Cumberbatch kind of stooped over, you know, withered arm, hunchbacked version that, you know, you might've seen on the hollow crown that, you know, unless you knew better at the time, you just sort of thought he was a relatively short statured man and no one really would have been able to tell. Mm-hmm. So uh, is our analysis of bone sort of confirming some of the things or disproving some of the things that we take for granted in history? You know, I think one of the biggest areas that, you know, bones have, you know, they've always told the truth. It's our perceptions that have changed that the, you know, it, it's somewhat disturbing to to talk about. But the scientific racism that existed for so long that, you know, people in positions of power often, uh, you know, colonizing forces throughout the world would look at, you know, the bones, particularly the skulls of indigenous people, whether in Australia or in South Africa or certainly in the Americas, and, you know, try and use science to say that these people are are inferior or that white-skinned people are superior or basically impose the existing power system there, you know, writing books and treaties and holding meetings and, you know, taking cranial capacity and all these things that, you know, to try and prove a point that the bones don't actually say, you know, if you look at bones, honestly, the story is one of variation that, you know, the races that we believe that we see are cultural constructs. There's no biological backing for this. These divisions that they made in the past don't actually exist, but that skeletons and bones and skulls in particular were used to harm people for a very long time. And thankfully, you know, after uh, World War II, and we saw what kind of endpoint that this kind of racism and this kind of ranking led to that, you know, has largely shifted. Uh, I mentioned this in the book primarily because unfortunately, I still see echoes of some of these arguments, these same thought processes that harm people for so long, you know, in our modern 21st century world, and they still need to be rooted out. But that, I think, is one of the largest changes, one of the biggest examples of, you know, our bones have been the same as they always have. There are these, you know, permanent documents of of our lives and our history. But particularly for people who want to maintain positions of power or you know, suppress other people, they become dangerous things. They've been terrible things. And thankfully, we're starting to to remedy that. But it took a pretty dramatic shift. And it's an example of, you know, who you are and what your perspective is really does influence what you see in nature. And it's good to be mindful of that, that science, you know, as much as it's a, so such a wonderful and useful tool for understanding the universe that, you know, it's done by people. It's not done by robots. We can't just say, well, the data don't why it's like well who's taking the data and how did they collect it and how are they analyzing this it's it's something that i think in, makes science more powerful when we recognize the human element to it do you have a favorite bone Jeez, a favorite bone <laughs> um you know it's it's difficult to say you know i i'm, I'm just going to go with my uh my gut here and it's funny how these expressions turn to the anatomical so often isn't it uh for now i'm just going to say my collarbone because i just find it so fascinating that it's there, that when you think about your arms, uh, they seem like such a sturdy, important thing. We use them for for everything. I'm using them right now to hold my phone as I'm talking to you. And 
they're connected to our bodies by so little that you've got your shoulder blade that slides back and forth over your back that's connected to your upper arm, so your humerus. So there's a cup in your shoulder blade that you know the humerus fits into. And then the collarbone reaches over and it connects to that junction and goes to the top of your rib, rib cage. But that's how your arm is skeletally, uh, skeletally connected to the rest of your body. It's not by this really firm apparatus. It's not like a ball and socket joint, like uh, you know your femur, your thigh goes into your hip and it seems really sturdy. It's just this really small connection made possible by that collarbone. So yeah, I, I would encourage listeners to you know, take a moment and appreciate your collarbones because without it, your arms would probably be on the floor. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week talking to former astronaut Catherine D. Sullivan about being the first American woman to walk in space. Until then, if you want to bone up on a little bit more science, the latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is packed full of eye-opening features and interviews. In the December issue, we're heading to Venus to explore the surface of Earth's toxic twin. There are, of course, plenty more episodes of the Science Focus podcast to listen back to, so why don't you dive back in and let us know which is your favourite with a rating, or tweet us at Science Focus. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.